Well, good afternoon. Uh, what a great song that is. Again, I can't tell you what a great thing it is to stand up and preach after singing. Uh, such great songs. You sing well, and uh, it's good for our hearts to be encouraged. Um, we've got a lot to get through today. I always say that, don't I? <laughs> um, we were joking, that I'm not sure there's enough place to make notes on the back of these uh, sermon outlines that we've given you. Um, but we'll do our best. You need to write small if you're making notes. Um, this is the third and final talk in our little series on shame. The way I've structured these talks has been deliberate because I wanted you to see three significant antidotes to the problem and the power of shame in our lives. There is a deliberate trajectory and direction to uh, what we've been doing. In the first talk, we were um, thinking about the cross where Jesus endured and conquered our shame. Uh, last week, if you were here, we were talking about the great contrast between shame and love. And we saw that shame is a weapon that is wielded against us by evil. It shuts down and destroys relationships and creativity and joy. Shame and love, in a sense, are two competing voices in our lives. Shame slams the door on us, and it's love, the love of God, that opens it again. And we need to make sure in our lives that we're listening to the right narrative. Uh, this week, my main aim is to show you that in this area, as well as many other areas, we desperately need one another. It turns out that shame is something that can only survive in the dark and in secret. You remember we spoke about Brenny Brown and her TED Talks, if you can remember back to the first week. She said this, if you put shame in a Petri dish. You know what a Petri dish is? That's what uh, biologists grow um, microorganisms in. It's not very nice, is it? If you put shame in a Petri dish, it needs three things to grow exponentially. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. But if you put the same amount of shame in a Petri dish and douse it with empathy, it can't survive. The two most powerful words when we are in struggle are me too. Me too. Shame is always seeking to isolate us from one another, to fight on our own. But the answer to shame is not to move away from other people, but for us to move towards one another. So my third antidote to shame is really that of finding healing in community. The shame that can only survive in secret will wither and die when we share it together. Now, you, you may be ahead of me. There are two sides to this, um, and this is why we're going to split our time together into two halves. 
The first side of this is that we as individual people, we have to learn how to be vulnerable. If, if we can't be vulnerable with one another, we're not going to deal with shame effectively. But the other side of it is, is about community. We also need to be in a community in which it is safe for us to be vulnerable. So we're going to think about those two sides of the same coin. First of all, about how, how it is that we can be vulnerable as individuals. And then secondly, we're going to think a little bit about what it means to be a supportive, loving Christian community. Does that make sense? Two, two halves, and we'll try and link those together. Let's focus first on vulnerability. I want to establish, first of all, a simple truth, that vulnerability is very hard. I'm sure you would agree with me when I say that. One of the most crippling features of shame is the fear of being exposed. The paradox is that the exposure is necessary if our shame is going to be healed. There's a great paradox there. The biggest fear in shame is that we don't want other people to know. But if our shame is going to be healed, then other people do need to know, to some degree, the real us. I mentioned a book that I've been reading uh, on this topic over the last few months by a Christian guy, Kate Thompson. Sorry. We're going to go back. I'll, I'll come back to that. Um, what I was going to say was one of the reasons that I've enjoyed reading uh, Kate Thompson's book, it's called The Soul of Shame. I would recommend it if you want to read more about this topic. One of the reasons I enjoyed reading Kate Thompson is the fact that he gives so many examples of people struggling with this very thing. Let me give you five. I, I, I actually went back through the book and made a list of all the examples, well over 20. I've just picked five for you. Let me summarize them. Gavin was a business owner. He cared for his staff, but his company won a large government contract for the first time. And his managers in his business were complaining that their workloads were too heavy. And Gavin was overwhelmed. He felt like the company had taken on too much. And he had always been the one who had all the answers. And now he felt like he didn't know what to do next. Gavin was asked, who helps you with your weaknesses? And he replied, whose job could it be? I own the company. Then he was asked, would you consider telling your senior managers that you feel overwhelmed? He said, that'll never happen. You see, Gavin felt that they wouldn't respect him if he didn't have all the answers. He wasn't interested in vulnerability. What he wanted was solution. Brady is a church pastor. 
He was a great preacher. People loved him. His church grew. And he was very busy. He tried to solve his feelings of being burnt out by working even harder. When he was asked, who is looking out for you? Tears came into his eyes as he replied, I'm so afraid that people will see me for who I am and tell me that I'm not fit to be here anymore. Gloria spent 30 years married to the man she loved before coming to terms with the fact that she had had an earlier abortion in her teens that she couldn't tell him about. 30 years. Justin was a successful investment broker but a serial commitment for you know what that is don't you he was into his late 30s and though he longed for relationship every time he became involved with a woman he got so scared that he started making excuses and creating obstacles during the course of some counselling amongst other things he was asked if he had ever been mistreated sexually when he was growing up initially he was unsure what to do with that but eventually he began to remember and recount how a cousin had introduced him to pornography and how that shared experience had led to some sexual behaviour between them he had felt excited and yet ashamed he could never have told another living soul but later on in his adult years those patterns were haunting him and every time he got close to someone he was flooded with the same sensations of shame and fear and anxiety Carla went to see a counsellor because she couldn't sleep insomnia help me with my insomnia they talked they explored a few issues until in one of the sessions Carla blurted out unexpectedly that she was having an affair with her boss her story was complex but the counsellor eventually asked her how she would feel telling her husband about the affair she said I feel like throwing up nauseous light headed he will hate me and leave me he'll take the kids and he would have every right to my life would be over Thompson writes Carla could see that her anticipation of feeling 
intensely vulnerable, and the shame embedded within it stood in the way of the movement she needed to make if her life was to be redeemed. She was surprised to discover that this sense of vulnerability, which she interpreted as a sign of her greatest weakness and a risk to her survival, was in fact the key to her healing. And listen to this, but how was she to swim across this river of fire? The river of fire, I love that depiction of vulnerability. All of these people, five people there, we've just taken a snapshot of their lives. All of these people, for different reasons, felt utterly vulnerable. For some, it was a sense of inadequacy. For others, it was long-term secrets. For Carla, it was serious sin and unfaithfulness. All these people standing alone on the shore, looking across, is a horrible combination of the hope of liberation and the terror of being abandoned. I want to be free, but I don't want to share. This is the sense that I can't truly be healed unless someone else knows. But I can't tell them because they'll leave me if I do. So yes, it is, isn't it? So, so hard to be vulnerable. I was, I was nearly going to call this talk Swimming Across the River of Fire. I think that sums up what, what we're going to think about. What incentives are there to swim across such a river? Let me just work through just a handful of things with you. First of all, I want to say, life depends on it. This is how we could picture things. Here's a nice little river of fire for you. Vulnerability, this is what it feels like. On the one hand, we have fear, shame, and a struggle for worthiness. And on the other hand, there is the joy, creativity, love, and belonging that we crave. To get to the other side, there is only one way, and it is the painful route of being known by other people. Here's a thought for you. As I've, as I've been reflecting on this, one of the things that strikes me is how this really clashes with a secular view of the world. Secular thinkers are beginning to recognize that vulnerability is crucial to human flourishing. And yet, naturalistic evolution teaches us, doesn't it, about the survival of the fittest? Vulnerability doesn't fit within that narrative, does it? Vulnerability is just weak and painful and something to avoid. So there's this inconsistency, in a way, in our secular world, that vulnerability is somehow a good thing, but it makes no sense in terms of survival of the fittest. I'm sure someone will come up with a reason at some point how something like vulnerability would have evolved, but there's no need for us to do that within a biblical framework. 
Vulnerability makes perfect sense. We are created to be vulnerable. We're wired to be dependent on God and to cooperate in dependency upon one another. I think it's worth also pointing out that actually the truth is that we're all vulnerable anyway. Isn't that true? In all of those stories we mentioned, those people, Gavin and Carl and all the others, they had what we might call a vulnerability crisis. As if vulnerability was a rare thing that just happens to some of us now and again. I think that's what our culture assumes. Vulnerability is seen as something that we feel when we're in crisis, but most of the time we're not that vulnerable. When we stop and think about it, we're actually vulnerable all the time. I, I want to suggest to you that we are physically vulnerable. That's why we wear clothes and live in houses, isn't it? We can limit our vulnerability, but it never truly goes away. We can and should be careful in our lives to avoid danger, but even if we do it perfectly, when you think about it, none of us can actually guarantee making it to the end of the week. We humans are possibly the most vulnerable species on the planet. I wonder whether, because we think so much about our physical safety that we've become wired to self-protect relationally. We feel that to be vulnerable is to be weak and it's to be avoided at all costs. But isn't it true that living in this world and rubbing shoulders with other people is risky constantly? We are all open all the time to being hurt relationally in all kinds of different ways. I think the truth is that the more of ourselves we open up to other people, the more it hurts when they betray us. It seems clear to all of us that relationships have enormous potential for joy and the same kind of potential for heartbreak when they go wrong. And friends, spiritually, we're vulnerable too. We can and do often go to extraordinary lengths to hide from God like Adam and Eve did. But in the end, we can't really ever run to a place where God can't see us. Do you remember the story of Jonah in the Old Testament? God told him to go one way and he ran the other way. He couldn't outrun God, could he? Helen read to us those beautiful words from Psalm 139 earlier. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn or settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. This is the confidence of an anxious believer in the faithfulness of God. But as I, as I was researching this uh, 
this whole theme, one of the hard truths that I was reminded of was how distressing this will be for proud unbelievers one day. Psalm 139 is written by a believer. Listen, we can try and cover our feelings of shame and vulnerability before God in order to feel more secure. But in the end, what is really true will really come out. There will be a future day when the proud will be stripped bare and exposed. And all the poxy fig leaves that we've tried to sellotape onto ourselves will all fall off. And the shame we've tried to cover will become our worst nightmare. We are vulnerable. In all these ways, we're actually incredibly vulnerable. All the elaborate schemes that we employ to help us feel invulnerable are really only giving us the illusion of control. On on a different note... I think it's true to say that vulnerability is built into our human lives too. Here's a question for you. What is the most creative thing that human beings can do? Surely it is to procreate and make other living humans. But this doesn't require great strength, bravado, power. It basically requires the most extreme, naked vulnerability, doesn't it? So as human beings, our maximum creativity actually requires the maximum vulnerability. In actual fact, I think we could say that life itself only really flourishes when we cooperate and work together and live relational lives. God said right at the beginning, it is not good for the man to be alone. We're not designed to be independent, but interdependent. The point of all this is to say that despite our efforts to not be vulnerable, we actually are vulnerable. And that this vulnerability isn't something for us to be afraid of or to avoid. This vulnerability can sometimes lead us to feel like it is a river of fire. But actually, it is the path towards life. Maybe it's no wonder that Jesus could say, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let me just highlight a couple of other things briefly. Um, I, I want to suggest to you that there is a sense in which God knows something of what it feels like. I'm not suggesting, hear, hear me when I say this, I'm not suggesting that God has things to be embarrassed about. I'm not suggesting that God is weak or dependent in any way. But I think when we think about it, there are some ways in which God, in some mysterious sense, risks exposure. Isn't it true that whenever we create something, we expose ourselves? 
I've been recently going back to doing study after like 20 odd years of being out of study and even when I was doing study it was scientific the first time I had to write an essay I have to write an essay and give it to someone and they're going to read it and mark it that is me exposing something that I've created it's scary even when you open your mouth in a conversation you're opening yourself up to being judged by other people so there is a sense in which God the ultimate creator exposes himself in the act of creation to the possibility of being rejected dismissed ridiculed but secondly God also reveals himself when Jesus comes into the world what what he's doing is saying this is who I am Jesus is God making himself known to us he desires that we know who he is he wants relationship and he invests himself in self-disclosure so Jesus is risking something when he says I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me because people can reject that truth and therefore be rejecting him In John chapter 6, Jesus taught the crowds in Galilee. Imagine Jesus teaching. And John tells us this, on hearing his words, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And from that time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. God himself, in a sense, puts himself out there in both creation and revelation. And that involves God being exposed to the risk and the possibility of rejection. I don't want to say that God is vulnerable, but I do want to say that somehow, in some mysterious way, God knows what that vulnerability feels like. And here's one final I want to say to you that God himself models the faithfulness that we need. I'm, I'm referring here to the fact, the mystery of God being Trinitarian. God himself is a mini community. The one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son and Spirit. And this reality is crucial when it comes to dealing with shame. Let me read to you a comment here. The loving relationship between the Father, the Son and the Spirit is the ground on which all other models of life and creativity rest. In this relationship of constant self-giving, vulnerable and joyful love, shame has no oxygen to breathe. The point is that in this divine relationship, God never leaves. That faithfulness 
in that divine community is the ultimate foundation of every other relationship. And that is the big story that you and I are part of. What I'm trying to emphasize here is that life does not consist of what you know. It doesn't consist of what you own. It doesn't even consist primarily in what you do. Life, in the end, consists of being known. Think of it as two axes. There's a vertical dimension here. We're designed to be known by God. But there's a horizontal human side to that. We're designed to be known and to know other people. This is how life flourishes. To be known by God and to be known by others is what we're made for. And both those axes require vulnerability. I hope we've recognized then, first of all, that vulnerability is not weakness. We've certainly seen that it can be hard and painful. But I hope you can also see that vulnerability is crucial for us to live well and to flourish as human beings. Now, we said there was another half, didn't we? We're going to think about community. If we're to be vulnerable then, we need to be part of safe communities that make this possible. The ultimate safe community is God himself who never leaves us or rejects us when we turn to him in repentance and faith. But how does that spill over into our human relationships? One of the great challenges in our own culture, I think, is the increasing irrelevance of the church. I think you would agree with me. One writer says this. I think this is how many people feel. Who wants to join a community with the reputation, deservedly or not, for being judgmental? Even as it preaches against such a thing. I think people can easily become disenfranchised with church if the name of the game is pretense, hypocrisy, and silent accusations. But this isn't the gospel of Jesus. He invited the broken, the failing, the sinners, the outcasts, the untouchables. And who, was it Hillary Clinton who called people the deplorables? I, I don't know if she actually said that, but you, you know what I mean. All those people who are marginalized. One writer commenting on the Gospel of Luke says this, The biblical Gospel of Luke includes stories of the disenfranchised, the leper who no one would touch, the paralytic, the infirm woman. Luke's stories invite his readers to see Christ as the transformer and healer. Luke even begins the grand story of glory in a place that many would consider shameful, a stable with shepherds. God's great story of glory is teeming with stories of the poor, the ill, the neglected, the scorned. 
but his presence turns the lowly into the exalted. Sometimes, sadly, churches can be the most shaming of places. This is where people should find love. And often church is a place where they find anything but love, isn't it? I want to take you to an example in the Bible of a community that was shame-based. We're going to spend a little bit of time on this. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 9. I, I love John's Gospel. This, this is a great part of the Bible. I, let me just say, by the way, as you turn to it, John chapter 9, it's on page 1075. Let me say this to those of you who are curious about Christianity. If you were trying to make Christianity up and make the Gospel up, this is a chapter that you wouldn't put in there. It has the ring of authenticity about it. Why? Because the disciples themselves just like us. I don't want to be unkind to them. You wouldn't put this in if you were trying to make it up. Let's go to John chapter 9. And uh, we'll read verses 1 to 7 first of all. As he went along, that's Jesus, he saw a man born uh, blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the men went and washed and came home seeing. The disciples asked Jesus whose fault it was. Their whole approach to life was based on blame and shame. And isn't Jesus' reply astonishing? If you, can I paraphrase Jesus? This is what he says. It's not about shame, guys. It's about joy. Jesus turns it upside down. They're thinking in terms of blame. Jesus is thinking in terms of opportunity. They're thinking in terms of judging. Jesus sees possibilities. They think in terms of fear. Jesus is anticipating something beautiful. And John then highlights three groups of people for us. First of all, verses 8 to 13, confused neighbours. Read on with me. His neighbours and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Solomon and wash. 
So I went and watched, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. I, I, I love the way these neighbors are so confused. Even when the man says, it is me. I don't, I, I don't just look like him. I am him. And what do they do? They police the situation. That we, we don't know what to do with this. We better take him to the Pharisees. They're confused. They want to know, what are the rules in this community? We'll take him to the Pharisees. They'll know what to do. Read on, verse 14. The day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. <gasps> Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man isn't from God, for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes they opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. The response of the leaders in a shame-based community is that they cannot accept that Jesus is from God. And their reasoning is, he doesn't keep the rules. A man born blind can now see, and their issue is, he did it on the Sabbath, he can't be, he can't be the Christ. The Pharisees sent for the man's parents, Verse 16, or actually verse 18. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? We know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he's of age. He'll speak for himself. John tells us, verse 22, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Isn't it interesting their son has just been healed and their biggest worry is that they're going to get thrown out of the synagogue if they acknowledge Jesus. This is a community operating on the basis of shame and fear. The Pharisees are saying, you believe in Jesus, you can get out. Their son has been healed by Christ. This is a crisis moment for the parents and their fear wins and they effectively wash their hands of it and say, ask him. 
And see now with me how shame does its work. Verse 24, a second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? He's a little bit belligerent, isn't he now? <laughs> then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as far as this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this, to this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. How dare you lecture us? Hey, that's the door slamming in his face, isn't it? Get out. Well, at least his mum and dad are still in. He's on the outside. Do you know what is utterly remarkable in this whole scene is that not once does it say that anyone in the whole community is happy that the man has been healed. The absence of joy is striking, isn't it? Here is a man born blind. The neighbours are confused. The leaders are faffing about, about the Sabbath on a power trip. The parents are frightened out of their wits. This whole community is riddled with shame and fear. It's endemic. No joy, friends. No joy at all. The story doesn't end there. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked, Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I've come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. It's intriguing, isn't it? Man, I... Just in passing here, isn't it beautiful that this, his eyes were opened physically? Jesus seeks him out. And he says to Jesus, Lord, I do believe. His eyes are open spiritually. Simple faith in Jesus. But the Pharisees, I, I think Jesus, in, in line with our theme here, Jesus is saying, the vulnerable can find healing. 
but those who are trying to be strong and deny that they even are vulnerable basically can't recognize Jesus at all. Shame-based community. Oh, well, we've had enough misery. Let's um, think about the opposite. I knew, I knew we'd run out of time here, so I've, I'm going to give you this all at once, okay? Here, here's what a love-based community looks like. My failures are not fatal. It is okay for me to be struggling. I don't have to know all the answers. Friends, what we need is reassurance that our sins, failures and mistakes can be forgiven. What we need is empathy with the long-term struggles that we have in our lives. And what we need is confidence to be able to live with apparent uncertainty. In a shame-based culture, these things all flip over. You are outside, we're inside. You can't cope, we can cope. You don't know stuff, we do know stuff. That's a shame-based culture. Shame makes us believe that things are fixed and final. We're inadequate. Everything's black and white. And I want to suggest to you that in many communities, sadly including churches, shame can so easily be heard whispering, you shouldn't have failed. You shouldn't be struggling. And you should know all the answers. How dare you? That is not how Jesus operated. I know you failed. You're vulnerable anyway. But I love you and died for you and I will not leave you. I know your long-term struggles. But I am with you in those struggles. And you don't need to know all the answers. It is enough for you simply to know me. I love the blind man's response to the Pharisees. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind. Now I can see. He didn't have to know all the answers, did he? You know, I hope, that I'm, not, that I'm not suggesting that we can do as we please and be accepted anyway. There is a danger here that someone could use this teaching against Jesus by saying, hey, Jesus, your job is to love me, even though I know I'm doing wrong. That would be a pretty pathetic excuse and a pretty poor saviour. Jesus loves people way too much for that. His love is a love that transforms us and lifts us out of our shame. And there are times, of course, that this might involve loving discipline in the church. But even when discipline is exerted, 
It's designed to be restorative, not punitive. The idea is not to slam the door in people's face, but leave the door jar for people to come back. What I'm talking about here is not a lack of loving discipline. I'm talking here about the way shame destructively operates in communities to make them unwelcoming, divisive and fearful. Listen, if someone wants to shake their fist at God and shake their fist at the church, that's one thing. But it is never the church's job to shake their fist at other people. Hey, we're we're nearly done. Let me um, close with some practical observations for you. I feel very proud of our community here. How how might we continue to cultivate joy in our church family here? How can we be a love-based community rather than a shame-based community? First of all, we we need to focus, and by focus, I mean focus, work hard to focus your attention on God's love, forgiveness, and delight. Let me ask you practically, what are you doing in your life? on a day-to-day basis to focus, really focus your attention on the love God has for you in Christ. We know this in our heads, but what are you doing to meditate and drink deeply at that fountain? It, It requires focus. It doesn't happen by magic. As a community, we need to be constantly bathing in the love, forgiveness, and delight of the Heavenly Father. Secondly, I want to say that we need to be honest about our failures and our struggles. To be released from shame, we need people to know the truth about us and yet not walk away. And that's what we have in the gospel. When we sin and when people sin against us. This is why it says in Ephesians chapter 4 that we are to speak the truth in love. We, we need to face the truth and know that people won't abandon us. We need both sides of that coin. So let me ask you again, who do you have in your life that you can share your deepest struggles with. I don't mean everyone, but who do you have in your life that you are intentional in sharing your struggles with? Who can you trust to be vulnerable with? Who knows you? Who really knows you? That's the question. If there are struggles in your life with sin, it isn't for nothing that the Bible tells us to confess our sins to one another. In James chapter 5, that is so that we can find healing and freedom from shame that would otherwise 
cripple us. Confessing our sins to one another is designed to stop us hiding in the shadows. Secret. I can tell you, I, I, this is not even in my notes, I, I can tell you there are times when I felt I, I, I need to, I, the times when I, he's not here, I phoned Ian Fenton and said, brother, just pray for me. I am struggling. And I, 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 I'm conscious that I need help here. What a joy it is to phone a brother and say, I'm really struggling with this. Pray for me. We have struggles. We can't fight on our own. We don't have to tell everyone, but tell someone. I want to encourage you that every single one of those examples I gave earlier found relief from their shame by having the courage to talk to someone else. Some of them were surprised at how positive the experience was. They expected people to dis be disappointed with them, but actually found the opposite. For others, it was a long and painful road of rebuilding trust and recovering. But marriages were healed and restored, secrets were left in the past, and new energy was found to move forward because people were willing to be vulnerable. Thirdly, hope. I think one of the blessings of being in relationship is that those relationships can inspire us to imagine a different future. That is the key. When we're in community together, we can speak into each other's lives and say, it doesn't have to be this way. Our past does not have to shape and determine our future. You can't do that on your own. When I reflect on these first three, it makes me realize just how relevant the sacraments are in our church's life together. Jesus commands his followers to reenact the very things that bring release and relief to our troubled hearts. Baptism and communion are great symbolic pictures of what it means to become and then to live as a Christian person to be washed in baptism, to look forward to a new life in Christ, in the power of his spirit. And in communion, when we gather as Christian believers around the Lord's table, what are we doing? We are focusing on the love of God shown to us in Christ. We're being honest about the fact that we failed and sinned and dishonored him. And there's hope there that it doesn't have to be like this. We have a hope of a glorious future. All of these truths are right there, around the table. Do not underestimate the joy involved in acting out these truths. Think of the smile on the face of Jesus when he tells his followers, remember me. That isn't a chore. Jesus, in his delight, loves to see his people gather to displace their shame with his joy, peace, hope, and love. 
We're done. I just want to say this last thing. In 1910, the President of the United States, Theodore Roosevelt, we've got some Americans here, gave an inspirational speech. Here's what he said. It is not the critic who counts. It is not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who does actually strive to do the deeds, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Friends, vulnerability is not being weak. It takes courage to swim that river of fire, to be in the arena, and to be daring greatly. Our friend Brenny Braun picked up on the idea of being in the arena if we're going to find our way back to each other vulnerability is going to be that path and I know it's seductive to stand outside the arena because I think I did it my whole life I think to myself I'm going to go in there and kick some ass when I'm bulletproof and when I'm perfect and that is seductive the truth is it never happens. And even if, you, even if you got as perfect as you could and as bulletproof as you could, when you got in there, that's not what we want to see. We want you to go in. We want to be with you and across from you. We just want for ourselves and the people we care about and the people we work with to dare greatly. Will you dare greatly? Will you step into the arena? Will you be vulnerable with God and with one another? Let's just bow for a moment, shall we? As we reflect, musicians can come up. I'm going to just close with some words from the end of 2 Thessalonians. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Amen.